guys, welcome to the table. My name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled that you're with us tonight. Uh, Meg, thanks for the... Hey, if you haven't tapped in yet to that digital document that we got going, we're trying to continue to bolster and evolve that. And so please, you know, not only tap into it, check into it, connect with it, but also like say, like, is there anything we could be doing differently about this? Is there any other ways we could be stretching it further, changing the ways we go about this? Right? And that's a fair ask to put on the community. All right. We're in a series, but before we get to the series, I want to let everybody know that we say this every time I grab a stool right here um, and we get into the sermonic content. The most important thing we want you to hear, it's hit or miss for the series, right? Like sometimes I'm just putting out hot air and nothing is applicable to our actual lived lives. And sometimes there's maybe, Becky's yet to find anything nutritious about this series, but some, it's hit or miss. The number one thing we want you to hear though, if you come into our community and you come into this space and you come to worship alongside of us, we want you to know that no matter who you are, that's not it, that's the benediction. I was on the right vein though. Who you are is more important than what you do. Even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Your substance as a person, your substance as an individual story, who you are, this is that rare space where you can come in and check in and look inside your own personal mirror alongside brothers and sisters and cousins who are going to hold you accountable and lift you up. And you can ask that question like, who actually am I? The noise is coming in left and right all the time, every day. But this is that space where you can sober up. This is that space where you can be reminded again that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Now, we are in a series. It's called The Shoulders Beneath Our Feet, which can be a little cryptic, so let me lay it out. It's this, we spent the past few weeks kind of naming some of the members inside of the great cloud of witnesses, if you will, naming some of the stories of the saints, the people who have gone before us that have set the trajectory that we are stepping upon, those giants, in the church tradition. Like for me, um, growing up, it was like Christ, Paul, John was somewhere in the mix. Beyond that though, Billy Graham. I know Michael W. Smith, Smith played a role, but I don't know exactly what that role was. Like we didn't grow up in the Protestant church with a lot of like spiritual giants. And so what we've tried to do in the space of the series on the shoulders beneath our feet is recognizing that quote, we stand on the shoulders of giants. It is imperative for people of our faith and of our tradition to recognize who are the owners of these shoulders beneath their feet. What are their stories? Why do certain sects inside of our tradition try to claim them and name them for what they are? Why are they finding certain nutrition, nutritious like um, elements inside for us to feed off of? So we've been doing that. We looked at St. Nick. Debbie, who have we all looked at? Mother Teresa. What'd you say? Dorothy. Day, Martin Luther King Jr., Oscar Romero. We've gone down the litany. Um, so now we're going to go to St. Francis. But can I first go to a dinner I had the other night? There I was, basement of the Target Center, sitting down with a friend who was also a pastor. And he was asking me, like, how are things going with the church? What's going on at the table? What's, what's the, like, the latest of the current events? And I said, well, we're actually coming to the end of a sermon series, as well as being at our feet. And he goes, um, well, was it successful? Now, John, how do you answer that question? Was it successful, he asked me. Was it a successful series? 
How would you actually go, Debbie, how would you go about answering that question? I don't know. Has this been an actually like successful series? Yeah, right. I mean, like, yes, I loved it. Yes, if that's, if that's like sufficient for a metrics that we need to put into play, like, yes, successful series. I personally love it. But how do you know? My mind goes to seminary where they said, like, you know if a sermon, you know a sermon was successful based upon the fact of uh, it was sticky. I don't actually know what that means. But, like, it stuck with you beyond the, the time of the service starting, the service stopping you remembered it, which is like, okay, maybe that's a factor in whether or not you can gauge a sermon to be successful. But I also remember like living La Vida Loca and that didn't change my life. You know what I mean? That had stickiness to it. I could tell you that my neighbors, the Andersons, 636-1825, that's their number. It means nothing to me now, but it had a stickiness. So I don't know if that's actually like an accurate way to gauge the substance and significance of whether or not something is successful. Another seminary book that was tossed my way said like, uh, did people walk away with more joy? Did they enjoy it? Again, I'm kind of like, really? Is that the best way to gauge whether or not a series, let alone a standalone sermon is successful? Did you enjoy the last time, TJ, you went to the gym? You don't go to the gym. <laughs> if somebody went to the gym and said, you know, like I had a really enjoyable experience and I said, elaborate a little bit further and say, well, it's just a relaxing time. I would say, I don't know that you're doing it right. That's not what the gym experience is supposed to be. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be pushing you. It's supposed to be holding you to a higher level. Of you're supposed to be like pushed beyond the comforts and the parameters that you put within that. So how do you gauge whether or not a sermon series, let alone a standalone sermon, is actually successful? I do not know, but it is fitting as we wrap up our series, that if you were to ask me, was the life of St. Francis of Assisi successful? I'd probably kind of navigate through that same kind of ambiguity. How would you gauge it? From us today in 2023, we would say uh, he died broke, alone, tried to navigate himself through a lifelong like paralysis of mental illness, including depression, anxiety, is that successful? I don't know. You would also say that he's the most beloved saint of all time in the history of the church. People of all different traditions inside of the Christian church and beyond would claim them as their predominant saint. Is that sufficient grounds for being successful? There's something about the life of St. Francis, Francis when we deal with the ambiguities around him and the mystery that surrounds him that I think it's appropriate I set out this morning at 8 a.m. I went into my office and I said, okay, Matt, let's put together that um, biography, the bullet points that we need to provide with the people on like who was St. Francis, what was he all about, let's get it down to this is what it was. Couldn't do it. What I did ascertain though in that process was this is a young man who was a troubadour, a poet, in love with French poetry, in love with the people that surrounded it. And he set out to live a life faithful to the calling of God that was placed on him. And so what I would like to do is bypass the prose and skip towards the poetry and just read you for me. I wasn't intending to do this, but I'm going to read you. When I try to like make sense of St. Francis' story, what I do as a songwriter is I need to just lay it out in story format. How would I best tell the story of St. Francis? So go with me. We're going back a thousand years in time back to those slopes of Mount Sabricia, 
we're going to go and we're going to visit that Umbrian city of Assisi. We're going to retell the story of St. Francis, but we're going to go with the end to understand the start. There's this moment in St. Francis' life where he's walking through the woods. At this point in his life, he's an old, frail man. It's not accurate to actually say old, but he's pushing 50. I know, chill, just relax for a second. I'm looking at my dad in particular. <laughs> dad, I don't want to hear about this afterwards. What I mean by that, though, is like he had done enough fasting and fighting and loving and losing that his body had taken the toll that few others had, and he could have passed as an 83-year-old. So say his contemporaries. His eyes were all but gone. He could barely make out the day. And yet daily, he still chose to walk through the woods. This time in particular, he walked with a peer of his, a close friend, brother, friar named Leo. Together, they went to the woods on that afternoon. And at one point, while St. Francis is leaning against a fragile tree that reflected the fragile body that he now carried, he turned to Leo and he said, would you finish the song that I once started to sing? He reached his shaking hands into his pocket. He extended it to the brother and he said, I don't, would you write it down for me? Could you just be my hand? Because I, I don't even have eyes anymore. Now this brother, Leo, who had been with him for the past 20 years, the one who had been by his side, consistent, faithful, who had been inspired by St. Francis and his life, he said, of course I will, but he didn't mean it at all. Legend says that he said these words saying, like, Francis, I will definitely dictate for you. I'll put it pen down to paper and mark these words of yours. But you're not the guy that I set out after. You haven't departed from the path that was set before you. You haven't, like, strayed from the calling that was put on you, but you're, you're blind now. You can barely see now. You're stumbling through the woods. That's not who you once were. When I first stepped outside of the church, I remembered you as this young boy who was born the son of a wealthy merchant, who, who traveled through the town as the life of every party that he stepped inside of. He was somebody that was known as a swooner of women. Is that an, act, is that an actual word? But he was so good with like prose. And matter of fact, like his given name at birth was Giovanni, but because he was so fluent in French poetry, they called him Francesco which is why we forever will know him as Francis. He was a wealthy, exorbitant youth who everybody somehow loves. Matter of fact, one contemporary biographer called him at that time the king of the youth. Everybody was going to be charmed by this guy if they had any space inside of his presence. Now you're a withering old man, said Brother Leo, loose inside of his head. It's not the same legend that I first stepped inside of. I remember you as somebody who was this zealot who set out at the age of 20 almost to try to earn the love of his father. I'm going to go into war. I'm going to be a knight. I'm going to armor up. I'm going to fight for our city of Assisi. I'm going to defend in the midst of the civil war that was unfolding at that time. He goes not into one battle, but two battles. After the first battle, he's in prison. He's tortured for a whole year and a half, and he goes back home. He is collecting himself from the PTSD, finding his feet once more, and then he re-enters in the war again. That's how I remember you. 
zealot, fire in your eyes, conviction in your heart. You were brave, you were fierce, you didn't settle. Now you're blind, now you're frail, now you're frazzled, you're leaning against a tree asking me to write down your words. That's not how I remember you right now. I remember you, Francis, as somebody who was compassionate, as somebody who had this moment of conviction, as somebody who saw that there was more here than most people could see. What an unimaginable task Brother Leo was asked to take on when Francis looked his way through blind, dim eyes and said, could you finish my song for me? Could you write these words down before my time has run out? When Brother Leo receives the words from St. Francis, Francis holds out this paper that has been crumpled in his pocket, hands it Leo's way. Leo receives it, he uncrumples it, he pulls it out, he flattens it out. And he recognizes that in the splatters of ink that are laying before him, there is a title on the top and says, The Canticle of the Sun. This is St. Francis' great work. A summation, if you will, of his theology, what he's experienced of the divine, what he intends to pass on to others who are looking for an experience of the divine. And in this canticle of son, the, the brother Leo starts to look it over and read it to himself, and he reads these following words. Be praised, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially through my Lord, brother, son, who brings the day, and you give light through him. And he is beautiful and radiant in all of his splendor. Of you, most high, he bears the likeness. Be praised, my Lord, through sister moon and the stars and the heavens you have made them precious and beautiful. Be praised, my Lord, through brother's wind and air and clouds and storms and all the weather through which you give your creatures sustenance. Be praised, my Lord, through Sister Water. She's very useful and humble and precious and pure. Be praised, my Lord, through Brother Fire, through whom you brighten the night. He is beautiful and cheerful and powerful and strong. Be praised, my Lord, through our sister Mother Earth, who feeds us and rules us and produces various fruits with colored flowers and herbs. We praise my Lord through our sister death, from whose embrace no living person can escape. Happier those she finds doing your will, that second death can do no harm to them. Praise and bless my Lord and give thanks and serve all with great humility. It's said that shortly after this tail end right here, the screen that's before you right now, was said out loud by Francis and written down by Brother Leo. There was a limited amount of time be between the speaking of these words out loud and him lying naked on the ground and Sister Death coming to take him home. He died at the age of what is believed to be around 52, 53. But in this canticle that has been sang and sung and read and believed and meditations have been placed upon it, people are experiencing the wisdom, the glimpse that we have inside of St. Francis' life. You know, when I was married, I mean, I am married. My wife's not in the room right now. She, I am presently married, happily. Let's make that clear. Is this recorded? All right. 
When I first got married, though, uh, one of the gifts, actually the gifts, the gift that I gave to my groomsmen was this book called Chasing Francis, written by Ian Morgan Crone. Did you ever read that, Jordan? You're nodding your head. I gave it, I gave it to y'all. Did you actually read it? Obligatory nods. I don't believe you. The reason why I gave this gift, though, was because this, the story of St. Francis was a story that I needed to know intimately. You read the life of this man. You read how he came to go from this place where he is living a pomp and precious life, away distantly from all who are in pain, poverty, on the margins, disconnected from the pomp and precious life. And you see how he stepped into solidarity as one who is compassionate, as one who is an advocate, as one who is fiercely loyal, as one who is rooted in the story of Christ. And you can't help but be compelled. All the way to his death, every step that this saint took, he stepped reverently. He had this realization that the whole earth, you know, biographers today, they will say St. Francis was the first to encounter God and take God outside of the church. St. Francis would laugh at that because he'd say there is no ground outside of the church. Every step that you take is sacred space. There is no human that has ever touched a blade of grass that has been unholy. There is no creature that hasn't been born strictly from the divine. We are all plugged in to the outlet that is God, the ground of our being, the one who sources all things. St. Francis was the first one to actually come out loud and say, this is true. St. Francis was the one who picked up worms on the road and carried them to the side because he was afraid they'd get trampled over by passersby. St. Francis was the one who went to woodcutters in the woods and said, please don't take down the whole tree. Let there be a sprout of life that, that persists for the sake of a new cycle of life. Every step St. Francis took in our world was sacramental. He saw God in all things. He didn't believe all things were God. He believed that God resided in all things. All things were infused by God that everything was holy. There was no outside of the temple because everything was inside of God. It was, as Paul said, in him we live and move and we have our being. Paul says later on in Romans that, you know, from the very start, if you're going to size it all up, you want to know who God is, there's a Bible that you have in your hands, but there's the first Bible that preceded it. And God makes himself evident to everybody that is itching, to everybody that has eyes to see and ears to hear and a mouth that is able to speak the truths out loud. God makes himself evident. God makes himself present. God makes himself accessible. And it's all around us at all times. When St. Francis is dying on the ground, in the presence of monks, he requested in his final breath to be stripped down to nakedness, laid on the ground in connection with creation. He said, in I came naked, out I will go naked. Sing the song that I sang once again. And together the monks, they clasped hands and they sang the canticle of sun that we just read out loud. Brother sun, sister death, brothers wind and air, the fire, family, all of it. I know that we can get in these places, you guys, and I know this is church where it's like, Matt, you're going to do a, uh, what do you call it? It's not a, um, not a dialogue, monologue? Yeah, thank you, TJ. I don't know why I keep picking on you. 
But there's a sense where it's like, um, we come here, do we sit? We do this obligatory head nod every now and then, and we move through the motions. But this is a solitary figure that changed the church in ways that we did not foresee, in ways that we have inadequately responded to ever since. When you consider this life, who saw the life of God all around you, what is keeping you from seeing the same? The tail end of his second canticle, when he's walking through the woods with Brother Leo, he, said, he talks about a first death and a second death. And the first death is something we need to like really sit in and camp in. It's not some esoteric exercise. It's not something that we do to talk about like a Freudian union, um, you know, ego type thing. That's not what this is particularly about. This is that sense of we have all kinds of labels that make bigness real small. We have all kinds of ways that we, we set out to define ourselves by trophies, trauma, or otherwise. Somewhere in between, the mundane and the mighty, each in its, in its own equivalence. What would it look like for you to set these things down and actually open yourselves up to how God is trying to introduce you to himself today? You know, in Eastern religions at the same time of St. Francis and in the time of us today, there's a lot of different words for the activity of God. When you consider how God is this being that is always creating, in Eastern religions, they would call that God Brahma. When they look around you and you see how the grass continues to grow and how the tree re-sprouts life, they would call that God who is sustaining Vishnu. When they look at like the way that the earth turns on in, in on itself, they would call that God, the God who is destroying one another, Shiva, removing obstacles, Ganesha. God being a mother, they would call her poverty. God being joyful, Krishna, warrior, Rama, and so forth. And we have the same thing in the Abrahamic traditions as well. When we look around the world as we are right now, and we say, where is God in this moment? There are many different manifestations of God that we would try to put a title upon, El Shaddai, Adonai. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, Nisi, all these different attributes and these titles we try to take on God's name. For Francis in particular, as he tried to size up the God who was, and he tried to like connect it with the God who is right now. You know, we talk about a lot of these saints, how they are always those who are committed to seeking after God. I don't know if the same could be said for Francis though. I don't know that he actually seeked after God as much as he was convinced and convicted by the reality that he was of the saw. He didn't need to be a pursuer because he was the pursued. He was somebody who profoundly understood at the core of his being that I cannot run any further away from God because every step that I take, God is there for me. I have this line from the Quran that is printed out in my office because I think it's one of the most beautiful ones that we can come across today. And it reads like this, whoever draws close to me by the length of a hand, I will draw close to him by the length of an arm. Whatever, whoever draws close to me by the length of an arm, I'll draw close to him by the length of a fathom. If my servant comes to me walking, I go to them running. Whoever meets me with enough sins to fill the earth, I promise you I'll meet them with as much forgiveness. What a beautiful image of God that is. You see, one of the beauties that St. Francis offers up to us today is we try to take from the story of this saint that is far too easily cast into just stained glass windows and folklore for the church to pass on. 
This is somebody who had no allegiance towards institutional Christianity. He had allegiance towards the Christ. He didn't love humanity, he loved humans. He was connected to real people in real time, looking for a real God who was present among the same. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite writers, disagreed with him a lot. One of my favorite writers who ever has written, he wrote a small biography about St. Francis, and he has these words that I just want to pass on to you. When he tries to define what is so special about St. Francis, what is it about his eyes that was able to ascertain and see the divine in each and every living thing that was around him? St. Francis deliberately did not see the mob for the men. He neither deceived or was deceived by the illusion of mass suggestion. Whatever his taste in monsters, hear this, he never saw before him a many-headed beast. He only saw the image of God, multiplied, but never monotonous. To him, a person was always a person and did not disappear in a dense crowd any more than in a desert. He honored all. That is, he not only loved but respected them all. What gave him his extraordinary personal power was this, that from the pope to the beggar, from the sultan of Syria and his pavilion to the ragged robbers crawling out of the wood, there was never a man who looked into those brown burning eyes without being certain that Francis Bernardoni was really interested in him in his own inner individual life from the cradle to the grave, that he himself was being valued, that he himself was being taken seriously, and not merely added to the spoils of some social policy or the names in some clerical document. There's 10,024 different things we could say about St. Francis. I didn't set out today to set them, say them all. But do hear that. Was he successful? I don't know. If you were asked the common person, though, who's the most beloved saint of all time, they would draw up Francis' name. Why? Because every person, every worm, every leaf, every creature, every human being, neighbor or otherwise, they felt seen by St. Francis. The pivotal moment in St. Francis' life is after he has this conversion moment. I'll spare you the details in hopes that you'll dive into biography. But he goes to the ruins of a church and he's humbled, fresh off of war. And he hears what he calls a tender and kind voice coming from the crucifix saying, repair my church. His whole life he spends in that reparative mode. And how he goes about his work is not some like massive change but John, I see you differently. Becca, I see you differently. I'm gonna take each individual and I'm gonna care for you as is. Otherwise, it's all a farce. Otherwise, it's all a facade. In our small, puny, beautiful, amazing little community that we have, if we wanna join St. Francis in the reparative work of the church, that's what it looks like. It's not new programs, it's not new initiatives, it's turning to neighbors all around you and saying, I see you, I value you, I give you dignity, I want to know more of you. How do I be in your particular corner? How do I advocate and stand beside you in the midst of whatever it is that you are going for? If we could respond 
in the way that St. Francis responds to the lepers and the least and the lost among him. Can you just imagine how beautiful a story that would be for Minneapolis? Will you pray with me? Christ, you are good. Christ, you are grateful. Christ, we are grateful. Jesus, Lord, we pray that we, uh, God, would see the substance of each of the people in this room, Lord, but not just inside this room, but those that we encounter on the streets, those that we encounter on a day in, day out. So when Monday morning comes around and we look at somebody's face and we see a stranger, Lord, give us some kind of restraint to recognize there are no strangers in the kingdom of God. That's your brother, that's your sister, that's your cousin, that's somebody who belongs and has worth and has value, God. Lord, give us St. Francis's eyes to see the holy hum that rests inside of all things, to see that the universe is truly enchanted. Everything has value. Everything is pregnant with you. Christ, we are so grateful for this story that, that provides us a window into your heart in Jesus' name we pray all things, amen. Um, I was thinking about the success of the series when Matt brought that up. And I was nodding my head yes. Because success, I think, for me is the constant reminder that I need as to what it means to practice the ways of Jesus. I think it's when we hear the stories of these saints, and I think what they hold in common, every single one of them, is what Matt talked about tonight, that it's not so much that they were seekers, although I think they were, but they were seers. And in every single saint we talked about, that's what we heard, right? That they had this ability, this burden sometimes, that on their heart they saw the face of Jesus and every single person they saw, that they saw God all around them and everything, and that whatever God put in front of them, they acted. It wasn't a big thing that was, you know, set up ahead of time in a program or some big system, but it was just doing what was in front of them. And I think that's the call on our lives as people who claim to practice the ways of Jesus. At least we're trying. And one of the ways that we're reminded is when we gather on Sunday nights, um, we remember who Jesus was, and we do that when we share in communion together. And the night before Jesus died, um, he was at a table with his disciples, and he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup, and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And that's what we do. We take the bread and we dip into the cup and we remember all the things we've talked about with the saints, the compassion and the kindness and seeing God in the face of everyone around us. Loving God, loving neighbor. So we invite you during the music to come up. There'll be people standing here and you can take the bread and dip it into the cup. Um. And with that, would you stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey, one quick announcement before we, we walk out of here. In that space right there, there will be cookies. Debbie, will there be milk? Why would you have cookies without milk? Never mind. Side conversation. Coffee. doesn't matter. Decaf coffee. It is what it is. Uh, we'd love to have you guys there and meet new people and, you know, step into that community impulse. And you can also sign up for a future meal. Let me close with this. If you were to ask me, what is the thing about St. Francis that I find to be most inspiring? What I think about most often is how he understood religion, the impulse of religion, the substance in religion, not to be conducive or contributive to some kind of emotional experience. If that's what you want, go get some ayahuasca in Columbia. Go to a praise and worship service when you're tired. Get the goosebumps that you want. St. Francis understood that religious experience is not a specific episodic experience. It transforms all of your experiences. When you have a tradition that you are stepping into and you're embodying and you're practicing, it transforms how you see all things always around you. Case in point being that prior to his conversion before the cross in that Umbrian town of Assisi, he had this moment where pomp and you know, pious St. Francis who avoided all things disgusting, everything that was deemed to be a deformity, unnatural, things that were unpleasant to his wealthy senses. He is riding on a road. On the back of a horse, he comes down this path where there is somebody, some figure, some solitary individual who is stumbling his way. Can't make out who it is, but it's not an opposing army from which Francis never did shrink back from. It's not some like authority figure from which Francis never shied away from being courageous in front of. It was actually like the heart of all Francis's fears. There was a leper walking his way. And coming off the back of many different dreams where St. Francis had felt God's urge to be more compassionate, more sympathetic, he comes upon this leper and with an energy that he would later describe as nothing but grace, he leaps off of the horse. He runs towards this leper. He wraps the leper in his arms, and he kisses the leper. And to his surprise, the leper kisses him back. Now, the story we tell in the church is that moments after that, when Francis rode on, at some point he turned around and he noticed that the leper that he kissed was no longer on the road. Like Christ on the Emmaus road, he disappeared like Christ at the dinner on the end. But that was the marking moment when Francis tried to understand and embody what it looks like to repair the church. Kissing those who are before you. Linking arms with those who are hurting before you. Going to the places in your neighborhood, in your network, in your day-in, day-out affairs where they are hurting the most, that's what love looks like when you put skin on it. Maybe we respond to that invitation with the, courageous, uh, the courage of St. Francis. Will you open your hands, close your eyes, and receive this word from the heart of God to you? Friends, family, brothers and sisters, no matter who you are, 
or what you've done, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, who you've loved or what you've lost, please know there will always be a seat here for you at the table. Always, always, always. Because you are a beloved child of God. And beloved, you belong. Go get some cookies in peace. And then we'll see you next week for Lent.